Welcome back to the Plant Powered People podcast. I'm Michelle Kane, your co-host and founder of World of Vegan. And I'm Tony Okamoto, your co-host and founder of Plant Based on a Budget and Food Sharing Vegan. On this show, we talk with plant-powered people from all around the globe about various aspects of plant-based living to empower you, dear listener, to learn, explore, and evolve in a kind, sustainable, and healthy direction, all while eating the most delicious food and having a ton of fun. Today, we're really thrilled to bring on one of my personal heroes who shaped my own philosophy and kind of shaped the path of my life (laughs) is a big reason why I'm here hosting this podcast today. And that is Peter Singer. Peter Singer is a philosopher, was a lecturer at Oxford and professor of bioethics at Princeton University and author of the groundbreaking book, Animal Liberation, which he wrote in 1975 and became a massive bestseller that sparked the animal rights movement. He has also written, co-authored, edited, or co-edited more than 50 books, and his writings have been translated in more than 30 languages. Some of his other works that are well-known are Practical Ethics, The Expanding Circle, Rethinking Life and Death, Ethics in the Real World, and Why Vegan? He also wrote the book, The Life You Can Save, which led him to found a nonprofit organization that has raised more than $70 million for the most effective charities assisting people in extreme poverty. Peter's really great at helping us think about how we can make the biggest impact in our lives. So if that's something that you're interested in, this episode is for you. I was listening to an interview with him last night before we recorded. And in it, he said, There was this vast universe of sentient beings who were regarded as being outside of the sphere of morality, which was the case uh, when he wrote the book Animal Liberation in 1975. And things have changed so much over the course of time. So we're going to dig a little bit into the history of the animal rights movement, the animal protection movement. And if you consider animals worthy of any basic rights or consideration, you really can thank Peter Singer for helping bring that idea mainstream. So we're so honored to be doing this special episode, which is actually in celebration of the new edition of Animal Liberation, the book that turned me vegan and paved the way for animals to be considered in our world. Before we jump into the show, we'd like to thank our sponsors of this episode, Panachisa and Ritual. Pana cheese is quite exciting because it's a brand new vegan Parmesan cheese that just launched in the US this year. I personally am obsessed with Parm. I literally grew up eating pasta with Parmesan cheese as the mainstay of my diet for the longest time. So I'm always so excited to try new options. And this one is a plant-based grated Parmesan cheese made from only five ingredients, organic cashews, nooch, aka nutritional yeast, garlic powder, Himalayan sea salt, and apple cider vinegar. Panachisa was founded by Janessa Steenberg, who grew up in a multi-generational Italian family and learned to cook from her Italian grandmother. I love that. I grew up with my grandmother and learned how to cook a lot from her. So I super appreciate that. It makes an amazing addition to all of your traditional dishes, including pasta, vegetables, salad, potatoes, popcorn, and more. And it's extra, extra, extra amazing. On our mac and cheese from the Friendly Vegan Cookbook, you have got to try it. If you want to check out the newest vegan cheese to enter the scene, you can visit panachiza.com. It's spelled P-A-N-A-C-H-E-E-Z-A. Com and enter the code PANACHIZA to save 15% off your first purchase. Sprinkle it, sauce it, savor it. PANACHIZA is Parmesan reimagined. Our next sponsor, Ritual, is a wildly popular vitamin company that's actually fully vegan as well, and also a B Corp, which I really appreciate. Ritual has a whole range of vitamins. They have multivitamins, prenatals, probiotics, But their Symbiotic Plus is pretty neat because it's a three-in-one capsule with prebiotics, probiotics, and postbiotics to support a balanced gut microbiome. If you're a little hasty on these, prebiotics are fiber and they basically feed probiotics. Probiotics are the beneficial bacteria that live in our gut and make up our microbiome, the composition of which is largely dependent on what fiber you consume. And postbiotics are the compounds made as probiotic bacteria break down the fiber molecules. 
Symbiotic Plus and Ritual are here to celebrate, not hide your insides. So there's no more shame in your gut game. That's why Ritual is offering our listeners 10% off during your first three months. Visit ritual.com slash plantpowered to start Ritual or add Symbiotic Plus to your subscription today. Hi, Peter. Welcome to the Plant Powered People podcast. It's such a pleasure to have you on the show. Hi, Tony. Good to be with you. This is actually... uh, I feel a little emotional right now. This is a really special moment for me to have you on the show because your book, Animal Liberation, is what inspired me to go vegan way back well over a a decade and a half ago now. A while ago when I was in college, I found Animal Liberation at a used bookstore. I was not an avid reader. So that I found that book... Uh, a dusty 1975 copy probably on the shelf and picked it up just because I loved animals and read it that summer, like in a day or two, it completely shook my world, my viewpoint on ethics, animals, philosophy, which I had not thought much about before and uh, inspired me to go vegan that summer, which yeah, changed my life and has also prevented a lot of suffering. So thank you so much and I'm so excited to to chat with you today and hopefully um, introduce even more of your work to some of our listeners. Thank you for the opportunity to do that, uh, Michelle. And uh, I'm impressed, actually, that you did respond in that way to what was by then already quite an old book, because uh, I don't know whether you had the original 1975 edition. In that case, you know, you're talking about something that was 30 years old. But anyway, uh the most recent, really fully updated edition was from 1990, so it was certainly not new, um, but it's terrific that you still responded to it in that way. I actually was going through my husband Paul's copy, and it's it, it, it looks like you signed it to him in 1996, and he has the 1990 version, and his copy, which I imagine he purchased um sometime in the early 90s, since you signed it in 96, looks like it has been read 1,000 times. It's <laughs> falling apart at the seams. There are pages that are earmarked. And it's a very, very well-loved book in this house. That's great. But clearly, it is time for a newer one that uh, won't fall apart and that also will have yes. fully updated text. Yes. And so with your new book, you you are rewriting it. Is that correct? That is correct. Um, I'm going through every line of it and much of it is really completely new because so many things have changed since it was last updated. Some of the philosophy, the basic ideas, uh, I think have stood the test of time very well. Um, And so they are not changing, but um, a lot of the facts, a lot of the details, a lot of the talk, for example, about the movement, which didn't really exist when the first edition was published and uh, what's happened since the 1990 edition, uh, that's there. Um, some new areas that people have got interested in, like uh, should we be trying to do something about the suffering of wild animals? Uh, there's a whole lot, you know, and it's, it's an almost completely new book, not entirely, but uh, quite substantially. We want to go way back and start in sort of the beginning of your journey. Take us through your evolution as a philosopher, how you got to become interested in the treatment of animals. And then we'll dive a lot more into your book and the different philosophies that you can share with us. But I'd love to start with how you grew up. We often ask our guests on this show how they were raised and how that shaped them as people today. So how did your upbringing shape your passion for philosophy and ethics today? Uh, So I didn't really have any passion for philosophy um, until I got to university. Uh, There was no philosophy taught in high schools then, uh, and I didn't really know very much about it. Uh, So I really started to hear about philosophy from uh, my older sister's boyfriend. I had a sister who was six years older than me, and uh, she had a boyfriend who'd studied some philosophy. So that's how I heard about it. Uh, And then when I went to university, I thought I'll give it a try. I was mainly interested in history because I'd got really involved in history uh, in the last couple of years of high school. But I thought, yeah, philosophy sounds something different. I'll I'll give it a try. Uh, So that's why I, I took it up. Uh, and then I did get interested in it. I 
did well in it academically. Uh, and uh, eventually I got a scholarship to study at uh, Oxford University in England. And uh, that's where I did my graduate work. I heard that you have um, a, a very, I guess, unusual and possibly impactful in your life story of your parents and how they, you know, got here and had you. And I'm wondering how that impacted your concern with ethics today. Uh, well, I, the background of my parents is that they were um, refugees from the Nazis. Uh, they had lived in Vienna until the Nazis uh, took over Austria in 1938. And then because they were of Jewish background, although neither of them was really religious, but uh, uh, they found that uh, they were not really going to have much of a future there. Um, my father was uh, trying to start in, in business and uh, Jews were not allowed to own any businesses. Uh, my mother was uh, just graduated as a physician uh, and Jewish physicians, uh, according to the Nazis, were only allowed to treat Jewish patients. Well, since there were quite a lot of Jewish physicians, maybe a th about a third of those in, in Vienna were Jewish and only 10% of the population. So uh, it was going to be very hard to make a living as a, as a Jewish physician just treating Jewish patients. So they decided to leave as soon as they could, and they did manage to get uh, out to Australia where I was born. So uh, I grew up in the shadow of that and, and also the fact that their parents, so my grandparents, uh, were not as quick to leave. I guess older people didn't quite believe you know, how bad things were going to get and they weren't so worried about their careers. So they stayed there and uh, uh, only one of them survived the Holocaust. The other three died uh, and the one who did survive was in a camp and was pretty fortunate to survive and then she was able to come out to Australia just after the war. Uh, so that, that shadow, the loss of my parents' parents, uh, uh, really was a factor, obviously, in my thinking. Um, but, uh, I don't know how directly it related to philosophy and to my interest in philosophy. As I say, that if it did, that didn't really emerge until I got to understand a bit about philosophy when I was at university. Yeah, that makes sense. I saw that your master's degree that you earned was for a thesis titled, Why Should I Be Moral? And I think that's what made me think about your parents and that experience because a lot of people just not don't ask that question. Like for us today, it's like, why should I be moral? Of course, like, of course we should care about everybody and, uh, you know, individuals. But that was kind of a revolutionary thought then. Can you talk about that like, and why we should care about what's right and wrong and what that was like at that time for you. Yeah, I, I have to say, although, of course, the, the Nazis were a particularly glaring example of um, people acting wrongly, uh, there's still lots of people who don't care very much about what, whether what they do is right or wrong. They're just thinking of themselves. Um, and it's, you know, that's just maybe an unfortunate fact about, uh, about human nature that, uh, that's that's the way many people are. Uh, maybe it's something that's encouraged by the consumer society that we have that puts so much emphasis on acquiring money and acquiring status by buying consumer goods. So that could be a, a cultural factor as well. But uh, yeah, I think the question is, is certainly still relevant. Uh, it's nice that you say we all just assume that we should be, but... Uh, <laughs> a lot of people, if, if they do say that, they're still paying lip service to it rather than actually doing it. Uh, and I struggled in that master's thesis to find uh, totally convincing reasons. Um, in, in the end, I guess, I came to the view that it's a more satisfying and more fulfilling life that you will lead if you do act ethically, that uh, it, it has its own rewards, as actually you know, philosophers have said for uh, many centuries or millennia, uh, and now there's more research in psychology that also shows that people who care about others, um, who are generous, who don't think only about themselves, end up being more content and more fulfilled with their life. Uh, when Michelle mentioned that everybody um, wants wants to be moral and wants to be kind and, and compassionate and uh, or implied that, I thought of my own family and I and my own family is very much family first. Like that is what 
they care about. And my dad is always talking about Manslow's hierarchy of needs. And that's how he lives his life and making sure his family is taken care of and that we have what we need to succeed and thrive. But beyond that, and I imagine this is similar for a lot of people, maybe he just, he hasn't yet created it or, or I'm not talking about my dad, but in general, people don't have the capacity or make the space to think beyond their family's needs. And is that something that you think that you've spent a lot of time thinking about how to convince those types of people, how to be beyond our basic needs? Yes, I I do think that's important. Uh, Some people, I suppose, may think that your family comes first and that that is part of living a moral life. Uh, But even if it even if it does come first, it certainly isn't first and only. Uh, I do think that living a moral life requires you to think beyond your immediate family and your friends and and those that you love and care for, uh, to thinking about others. And particularly if you're living in an affluent society and you're not among the really unfortunate uh, members who are at the bottom of that society, but you're middle class or above, you know, you don't have to think about every penny you spend. You can go go to a cafe and sit there and buy a cup of coffee, although um, that, that's a luxury that uh, a billion people or more in the world couldn't possibly think of doing. Uh, so if you're in, in that situation, then I think you really ought to be thinking beyond yourself and your family and thinking about people in the world who are less fortunate than you are and what you could perhaps be doing to help them. Uh, And also, uh, of course, thinking about non-human animals and what impact are you having on them? And and that's another area of people's lives that uh, often people just just don't think about. They they just take for granted that uh, to get food, they will go down to the supermarket and they will buy what's there. And that will include uh, all kinds of animal products, nearly all of which will have come from factory farms uh, and they won't be thinking about uh, what the animals had to endure to be to have their bodies turned into flesh or eggs or milk. Uh, so unfortunately, there's, uh, you know, morality, living an ethical life is just um, much broader than thinking about how to best help your family. I think if you ask most people on the street, are you moral? they would probably say yes, and they probably want to believe that they are moral. Uh, But the definition of what moral means is different for everybody. And like Tony, for your dad, he probably thinks the best way he can be a moral human being is by caring for the people who he loves. Um, And what I think is so incredible about, about your work is that it creates a, um, a roadmap of morality that's not based on our own brain's rationalizations or preferences, but that's based on um, pure suffering and joy, uh, and is a great a greater viewpoint of morality that's not swayed by our personal interest. And to have that when that's presented to you, if you are one of these people who who does want to be moral, it's hard to unsee it once you once the information's there once you present it in a way that you realize oh yeah why aren't we thinking about you know these individuals in the world who can't even get food on their plate and i'm here drinking a cup of coffee like you can never get that out of your brain once you know it but it would never enter your brain unless you read it or come across it somewhere which is why your work was so groundbreaking i'm curious though your your philosophical journey and work didn't start with animals so what when did the treatment of animals get on their radar? Why did that have such an impact on you and become such an important part of your work? And like, were you always a longtime animal lover or or how did that interest peak? I was certainly not a, a longtime animal lover. Uh, when I was young, we the family had a cat, um, but the cat disappeared at some point. Um, I don't know what happened uh, to her, but um, she disappeared, and maybe I was six or seven at the time. Uh, and we we didn't get another uh, companion animal. So, oh, I, I had some goldfish actually. Um, but apart from the, the, the goldfish, there were 
no other animals in our in our household, no no non-human animals, uh, and I wasn't particularly interested in animals uh, during my childhood or teenage years, uh, and it was really quite accidental that I started thinking about the ethics of how we treat animals. Uh, the accident was that I I was a graduate student at Oxford. Um, this is in 1970, so I was. 24 years old, and it's probably hard for your younger listeners to imagine this, but I had never had a conversation with a vegetarian. Um, I had possibly never even met a vegetarian, or perhaps I'd met uh, some uh, people who were Indian or Indian background um, who were vegetarians as part of their Hindu beliefs uh, and traditions. But um, I hadn't really talked to them about it. And if I had, um, probably those reasons would not have appealed to me at all. But, um, but in 1970, I uh, struck up a conversation in a philosophy class with, with uh, a Canadian uh, student called Richard Keshen. Um, the class had nothing to do with animals. We were talking about free will and responsibility. Uh, but as it was, the class ended just before lunch, uh, Richard said, would you like to continue the conversation over lunch? You could come to my college. Uh, Oxford students got lunch at their colleges, so uh, he brought me in as a guest. And uh, the choice of what to eat then was there was either a hot dish or a salad plate. And the hot dish was spaghetti, which had a kind of a brown sauce poured over the top of it. Uh, and Richard asked the person serving, whether the sauce had meat in it. And when he was told that it did, he took the salad plate. Uh, I didn't think the salad plate was going to be enough for me, so I took the spaghetti and we continued our conversation about free will and responsibility for a while. Um, but after that sort of came to an end, I asked him what his problem was with meat because this is, was really unusual then for somebody to say, uh, I don't want to eat that because it has meat in it. Uh, so I asked him what his problem was, um, and he simply said, uh, I don't think it was right to treat the, the animal as they were treated before they were turned into meat, uh, which was a very straightforward kind of answer, not really something I'd been expecting. I'd perhaps more been expecting some kind of absolute opposition to killing uh, that might have gone along with a pacifist view in general. Uh, and I think that would have been less persuasive for me because I, I wasn't a pacifist. I'd been through uh, the Vietnam War period. The Vietnam War was still going, and I'd been a, a resistor to the to the war and to the draft, but not from a standpoint of absolute pacifism. I, I would have certainly gone to war to fight the Nazis. Uh, so I was surprised by this rather simple sort of answer, and. I wasn't sure what he meant by saying he didn't think the animals were treated well because my idea of how animals were treated was that they were outside in the fields, that they you know, had a reasonably natural and good life for those animals. This was probably a cow who'd been ground up into my spaghetti sauce and uh, that they would be outside in the field. And, and then, of course, I knew that they would get trucked to a slaughterhouse and killed. That would be bad. Um, but, you know, one bad day after out of a life that seemed pretty good on the whole, uh, didn't seem so bad to me. But Richard disillusioned me about that. Um, he uh, informed me that uh, many animals uh, were being brought inside and closely confined, uh, not able to graze in the fields, not able to walk around freely, and uh, that Farming had become much more industrial than it used to be. It was no longer so much the small farmer who knew animals individually, but um, many more animals who were being mass-produced, uh, that uh, uh, particularly chickens and pigs were confined indoors all their lives, never got to walk outside in the fields, uh, and that even uh, cows were often in feedlots, which were very barren places. So uh, that did surprise me and disturb me. Uh, Richard mentioned a book, it was the only book on the time, uh, at that time about factory farming, uh, a book called Animal Machines by Ruth Harrison. Uh, and I went and read that and I was even more disturbed. In fact, I was really horrified by what I read about how animals were being treated in factory farms. Uh, 
and I talked to my wife. I was already married then, and uh, Renata and I discussed this. And uh, the first thing we decided to do was not to eat uh, products from factory farms. But pretty soon we realized that that wasn't really enough, that there was a lot of other mistreatment going on for even animals that weren't factory farmed. Uh, and so we stopped eating meat altogether. And I started thinking about this as a kind of unknown ethical issue, uh, you know, uh, an ethical issue that I hadn't known about and that hardly anybody did know, know about. Um, it was sort of being brushed aside by, by most people and not publicized uh, in the news media either. So that's when I became interested in it as an ethical question and started thinking about it, I suppose, uh, as a question worth investigating further. Well, it's really lucky that you did, because at that time, there was like a mentality of be kind to animals or people who supported animal welfare, dogs and cats, especially maybe wildlife. But you ended up helping create this new paradigm for how to make progress for animals, like meaningful change that could help prevent a lot of suffering. You got people to think not just about better treatment of animals, but about the fundamental rights of animals. And I mean, in some ways, your book launched the animal rights movement. So I'd love for you to share what, like, what inspired you to write it? How did that progress into writing that book? And then, um, and then what happened from there? Right. Well, um, so Richard, as well as being a vegetarian himself, and also uh, uh, his wife, Mary, was, um, we sort of met them and we became friends with with them and they also introduced me to uh some other vegetarians that they knew in oxford uh there was a canadian couple called stanley and rosalind godlevich uh there was a uh, english uh graduate student called john harris and there were several others um and uh stanley and rosalind godlevich and john harris were actually in the process of editing a book about the treatment of animals, uh, which was called Animals, Men and Morals. And so I at first didn't think about writing on this myself because I thought, uh, you know, there's already this book underway by people who've been thinking about this before I got to think about it. Um, and uh, hopefully that will expose the issue and a lot of people will pay attention to it. Uh, but when that book was published in, uh, this is in, in England, Unfortunately, nobody took any notice of it. Uh, that includes the news media. Uh, it did not receive a single uh, review in any of the British newspapers or Sunday papers, uh, major magazines. Uh, it was just being ignored. Uh, uh, you know, obviously, it was not selling either because nobody was hearing about it. Uh, this was tremendously disappointing to all of us who'd been hoping that something would really happen. Uh, and then um, there was a bit of good news. Um, the rights to the book were sold to an American publisher, Taplinger. Um, but the problem was this was a relatively small publisher, and perhaps the same thing was going to happen in the United States that had happened in uh, in England. So I um, thought, is there perhaps something that I can do to make the book better known in the United States? And there was one magazine that I thought was radical enough to actually consider discussing this issue seriously and would also be the perfect place because it was read by a lot of people who were, had progressive ideas uh, for people to hear about it. Uh, and that was the New York Review of Books, which at this time was what really everybody who was progressive in their views uh, was reading. By now, I was I was no longer a graduate student. I'd, I'd graduated and I had a uh, a junior position uh, in, at Oxford University, so uh, I was I wrote to the editor of the New York Review of Books, Robert Silvers, uh, using my Oxford University letterhead, um, and uh, told him about this this book that was being published, and suggested that it wasn't just about being kind to animals, but it was really calling for a very radical change in the way that animals are treated. Uh, and that it could be likened to, I said, um, the women's liberation movement, as the feminist movement was known then, or the black liberation movement, which the New York Review had published 
many articles about those movements and in support of those movements, and that this could be considered an animal liberation movement. I got a reply from Robert Silvers, which was kind of guardedly encouraging. He, he said, uh, that's an interesting idea. Um, I couldn't commit to publishing something um, until I'd seen it, but if you'd like to write up those ideas um, more fully, uh, I think he said in three or 4,000 words, uh, I'll consider publishing it. So, of course, I, I seized that opportunity, and I was delighted when it was accepted. Uh, and that was published in, in 1973, and it did draw some attention to the book. But uh, what came out of that were I got, I got quite a few letters from people who said, you know, this is a great idea, or some of them said, this puts in a more philosophical form what I've often been thinking. Uh, and one of them came from a, a leading American publisher, uh, Simon and Schuster, uh, and that was uh, asking me whether I thought there could be a book in this topic. Um, and although there had been this collection of articles that my friends had published, I, I did think that there could be a more unified and, and coherent approach to present these ideas. So uh, I responded to that and and started writing that book, which uh, in the event wasn't published by that publisher because that editor had moved on and uh, her successor wasn't interested, but it uh, it did get published and, and that became Animal Liberation. And that book, Animal Liberation, it triggered a discussion about the treatment of animals sort of for the first time mainstream. How did that happen? What was that like? And how did it help lead to where we are today? I mean, it was really just the beginning of this entering the awareness of of human beings <laughs> to even think think about the the care and treatment of animals to think about you know can they suffer should we care um, so where what happened after you came out with animal liberation? Well, I was quite uncertain what sort of reaction it would get. Actually, I did worry that it might suffer the same fate as my friend's book, but. Uh, it didn't, and you know, maybe the time was ripe for it. Maybe I, because it was a, a unified single voice rather than many different voices, um, it appealed to people more. But it did get quite a lot of publicity at the time. Uh, I did a speaking tour of major cities in the United States about it. Uh, it was written about in uh, a lot of media, including getting a, a full-page review in the New York Times uh, book review. Uh, and uh, of course, I was I was pleased with that opportunity, and I tried to make the most of it and uh, to encourage uh, more people to read it. And I, I think it it did evoke a response. There were there were already some animal organisations, but um, most of them were not very radical. They were rather cautious, uh, but a couple of them took it up and promoted it to their members. And then. Um, a couple of years later, uh, a new organization got founded called People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, founded by Ingrid Newkirk, who is still president of that organization, and, and Alex Pacheco. Uh, and uh, they started donating uh, the book to, to everybody who joined and, and you know, paid some donation uh, on subscribing to their, uh, to their newsletter. Uh, and... Uh, People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals rapidly grew into the largest uh, organization in terms of the number of people that, they, that support them or that they email to or, or then send newsletters to. Uh, and so a lot of people got to read the book because they got sent it. Uh, you know, they, they were buying the book in, in bulk at a very cheap price from the publishers and um, tens of thousands of, of copies passed through uh, their office and out into the community. And I think that was a major factor in uh, how the book became well-known. Well, that's... It feels like all of the timing just came together just perfectly to to help this reach people, which really changed the outcome of our society as we know it today. Um, in the book, it, your book was my first introduction to the idea of utilitarianism. And that was something that really resonated with me at the time as I read it. It just made so much sense, but it was something I'd never, I'd, I'd never heard that concept before. Can you talk a little bit about utilitarianism? What is it? Why is it important? Why does it matter? And how does that apply to practical ethics? Sure. Uh, 
Utilitarianism is the idea that the right action is the one that will produce the best consequences, where by best consequences, we mean it will do the most to reduce pain and suffering and to increase joy and happiness. Uh, it's, a, it's an idea that goes back to the late 18th century. Jeremy Bentham is generally regarded as the founder of the modern utilitarian movement. Uh, it had other uh, advocates like John Stuart Mill. Uh, but um, I would say it, it's somehow sort of, a, although it was popular in some places, uh, it dropped into the background a little bit. But it had had led to many reforms, many positive reforms. The utilitarians have been very prominent in the um, abolition of the slave trade, uh, in the prison reform movement. Prisons were, were horrible in, in particularly in Britain at, at the time, and in extending the franchise as well. Uh, they were behind the idea of, uh, well, they were publicly behind the idea of every man having a vote, although Jeremy Bentham himself wrote in the 18th century that there's no reason why women shouldn't have the vote as well. But he said, if we support that, uh, we'll be ridiculed. Uh, so the time certainly wasn't, unfortunately, ready for that yet. Uh, so it's been an important reforming influence. Um, but I should say, as you mentioned it in connection with animal liberation, uh, I don't think it's necessary to be a utilitarian to support the ideas of animal liberation. I, I tried to write the book in such a way that people from a, a wide range of different ethical positions could uh, agree with it. Uh, I think if you are a utilitarian, then certainly you should be following those ideas because I think that's an implication of utilitarianism that uh, it extends to all beings who can suffer. And, uh, of course, that includes non-human animals. But uh, I, I welcome people who come from different ethical perspectives but who still see that it's completely wrong for us to uh, force animals to endure lives of suffering and misery in factory farms just so that we can enjoy the taste of their flesh when we can nourish ourselves perfectly well, we can feed the world's population more efficiently, uh, and, of course, we can reduce greenhouse gas emissions by avoiding eating animals. If you identify as a utilitarian, how does that impact your choices? As a utilitarian, you should be thinking about how to do the most good that you can. Now, that can be a, a very demanding ethic, and uh, you know, I'm not expecting people to be saints. But uh, in general, you can think about relatively easy ways in which you can make a big positive difference to others. Um, I've already mentioned that by not supporting factory farming, you can contribute with others to reducing the suffering of animals. But uh, as I said right at the start of this conversation, you can also make a difference to people who are living in extreme poverty if you're middle class or above living in an affluent society or perhaps living in any society. Uh, and you, you have spare cash that you spend on things that you don't really need, that relatively modest amount of money can make a life-changing difference to people in extreme poverty. Uh, the World Bank defines extreme poverty as roughly living on $2 per day or less. So these are people who are living on seven, dollars $800 a year. Um, and you can make an immense difference to them if you were to give them, let's say, and, and there are organizations like that will do this for you. There's one called Give Directly. Uh, if you were to give them $100, um, may not be a huge amount to you, but it's more than 10% of their annual income. Uh, and obviously, that, that can make a big difference to uh, their lives, to how well they can feed their families, to whether they can afford some basic medical care that they might need, perhaps to whether they can send their children to school, which might not be free where they live. Uh, so if you think about the difference that that would make to you, not very great, and the very great difference it would make to people in extreme poverty, and you know that there's an organization, this Give Directly, that will take your money, that they, they will take 10% for administrative costs, I believe, because you know, it takes money to, to run an organization. You can't do it for nothing. But um, uh, so $90 in your, of your 100 will go to help people um, for whom that's a really significant sum. Uh, then, then that's a good thing to do. Uh, and you should 
people should be thinking about what they can afford to support to do to support uh, some of these charities. It doesn't have to be a direct cash donation. They could be giving bed nets to protect people against malaria. Uh, they could be doing a, a whole range of things to help save the lives of people in extreme poverty or to just improve their lives and give them a chance to escape poverty, maybe giving them something to start a business uh, and some training and mentoring in how to start a business to get out of poverty. So I think those are important things that utilitarians uh, should be doing. Um, and of course, they should also avoid um, inflicting suffering, uh, generally trying to, to help people, um, trying to avoid contributing to things that do inflict uh, suffering, uh, like factory farms, uh, like climate change, which is certainly making the world a, a worse place. Uh, there's a whole range of opportunities. We could spend a, a lot of time with them. Uh, utilitarians have generally supported the movement for uh, uh, voluntary assisted dying or physician assisted dying, as it's sometimes called. Uh, because if somebody is, has got a terminal disease, they're suffering from cancer and they don't want to go on living to the bitter end, they think that their quality of life was already diminished to the point where the balance of suffering is outweighing what positive things they can get from life um, and they decide it's time to go, uh, why shouldn't uh, they have the opportunity to end their life in a calm and peaceful way with the assistance of a physician who can do that and who's willing to do that for them. So that that's another example of, I think, a, a cause that utilitarians will generally support. I really appreciate um, just, just any exposure that I have to your work because I, it always is a reminder when sometimes we can get so absorbed in our own lives that we don't think about what's not in front of us. And what's not in front of us is a lot of really, really awful things that we could help with. And when it's not right in front of you, uh, we obviously don't take action and and we don't care that much. But um, I was wondering if you could share just the premise of your essay, The Life You Could Save, the situation uh, that that encounter. And I think it really helped me see the luxuries in my life that I could easily do without that could save the life or um, help someone else. Would you, do you remember it? Well, I'm sure you do. Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, but Michelle, I, I think you're slightly mixing up a couple of things. Um, I The essays that I had in the New York Times, there were two of them. One was called The Singer Solution to World Poverty. And the other one was called uh, How Much Should a Billionaire Give and How Much Should You? Uh, the Life You Can Save is the title of a book that I wrote. Um, but I'm, I'm glad that you've mentioned it because I, I'd like to inform your listeners that if they're interested in either listening to it or reading it as an ebook, they can get uh, an ebook or an audio book uh, completely free just by going to the website, thelifeyoucansave.org, um, and they'll find instructions for downloading the audio book or the ebook. Uh, thelifeyoucansave.org is a, is a charity that I founded, which uh, curates a list of the most effective charities that people can give to. I love that. So the situation is the the child and the boots. Right, That's right, the, absolutely. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, good. So uh, the argument that I made in in uh, the New York Times essay was I asked readers to imagine that they're walking across a park, and in that park there's a pond, which they know is quite shallow because in summer they've seen children playing in the pond and uh, teenagers can stand in the pond easily. They could stand in the pond easily. Uh, but it's not summer now, and uh, so they're not expecting anyone to be in the pond. But when they glance at it, they notice that there is someone splashing in the pond, but it's not a teenager who could stand. It's a very small child uh, who uh, clearly won't be able to stand and seems to be in danger of drowning. Now, um, I suppose the first thing you would think of if you were in that situation is uh, who's looking after this child? Where is the parent or babysitter who must be with this child? But you look around, you can't see anyone. You don't know how this has come about, but there seems to be a very small child drowning in a pond and you're the only person who could rescue this child. So your next thought I hope would be, well, I better run down to the pond, jump in and grab the child before the child drowns. But 
as you start to do that, you have this less noble thought, which is that you're wearing a really expensive pair of shoes. Uh, you don't have time to, to get them off, but if you jump into the pond with them, they're going to get ruined because they're not the kind of footwear that will take being immersed in, in muddy water. So perhaps you have this fleeting thought, do I really have to do this? Um, it's not my child after all, and I'm not in any way responsible for the child. Nobody said, please look after my child while I go to the bathroom or anything like that. Uh, so why should I ruin my shoes? Now, I hope that most readers and most listeners here would think, well, of course you ought to jump into the pond and never mind about your shoes. How can you compare the value of a pair of shoes with a child's life? Uh, I think that's the right reaction to have, clearly. But if that's what you think, and if you're saying, you know, somebody who didn't jump into the pond because they didn't want to ruin their shoes, uh, knowing that that would probably mean that a child died, uh, would be an absolutely monstrous kind of person. I wouldn't want have anything to do with such a person. Okay, so let's say let's say you do have that thought, you agree with that, but now think about your own life. If you are one of these people who is comfortably enjoying a middle class or better life in an affluent society, spending money on lots of things that you don't really need, and yet, as I mentioned, there are about uh, at least 800 million people is the current World Bank figure of people in extreme poverty. Um, and the death rate among their children and among adults as well is far higher than it is among people who are not in extreme poverty. And, and particularly for small children, the infant mortality is, is quite high. Uh, and there are things that you can easily do to save those lives. So, for example, you can uh, donate to the Against Malaria Foundation, a, a highly effective charity that distributes bed nets that protect children against malaria and protect adults as well. Um, but it's mostly the children who die from malaria. Uh, and you, know, you can save lives at quite low cost by um, helping them to distribute more bed nets. And, and the more they distribute, the more lives will be saved. So uh, if you're not doing that, are you really so different from the person who didn't want to jump into the pond so that they wouldn't be put to the expense of buying a new pair of shoes? Uh, because essentially, it's a, it's a somewhat similar trade-off that you're saying, uh, there's an amount of money that I don't want to spend and I'm prepared to let a child die in order to not spend it. That's what the person who doesn't jump into the pond to save the child would be effectively saying. And if you're saying, well, I don't want to donate to these effective charities, I'd rather spend the money on whatever it might be. It might be new shoes uh, that you don't really need, but you, know, you don't like last year's fashions in shoes. Uh, or it might be all of those cups of coffee that you have at a cafe when you don't need, you could get a cup of coffee much more cheaply somewhere else, you know, making it yourself, uh, uh, or, you know, a whole lot of other things. Clearly, we, we all spend money on things we don't really need, and I'm not claiming that I don't either, but um, I do give significantly as well, and that's what I'm suggesting that people should do, and that certainly utilitarians uh, would be doing, because they would be saying the difference that this makes to me by giving some of this money away is far, far less um, than the difference it makes to the person who needs it, to the person whose life will be saved by a bed net or who will uh, be able to put a new roof on their house instead of the leaky old one because they got a cash grant or will be able to work their way out of poverty because they're getting some mentoring and assistance in starting a new business. Uh, those and a whole lot of other things are what the organizations on the website of the lifeyoucansave.org are doing. Um, and they're doing it, as I say, very cost effectively. So uh, I think that you, know, you don't have to be a utilitarian again. As I said, you know, you, anybody who thinks that it's good to help people in poverty, it's good to reduce suffering, um, those are things that we can and should be doing, I believe. 
Thank you so much for sharing that. We will link that and resources for those who are feeling inspired to donate or to give up coffee for a month and donate the proceeds. If you feel like you don't have anything extra you can spare, there's almost always something that we can adjust a little bit to be able to help or in a big way. And it's just so inspiring to see someone living by example because it's one thing to have these philosophies philosophical discussions and like, here's the the best thing we can be doing to be an ethical human. But it's a totally another thing to, um, you know, write a check for a third of your income or whatever, whatever, um, to, to really be making a difference in the world. But the fact is, this world is a very unfair place. And most of you listening to this podcast right now are, are in a in relative privilege, if not extreme privilege compared to many of the human beings on this planet. And um, so I I hope this can be a reminder to all of us to look for opportunities for what we can do to to help those who are dealt a much less less privileged and very unfair card in their life that have no option to get out of it. Yeah. Uh, Peter, I I really appreciate... um, how you're how you encourage people to be really thoughtful about how they donate as well so it's not just giving to everybody i know you just explained a lot of this but i remember listening to an interview with you on i think it was maybe npr or uh, at some point about um helping the most people in need and your example was donating to buy someone or, or get get someone a seeing eye dog versus helping many people in another country have sight. And I, I can't remember if you said it was through glasses or... Uh, no, it or- was through... Um, well, it could be through uh, cataract operations, through, or through uh, removing cataracts, or it could be through preventative treatment of uh, to prevent people getting trachoma, which is a, a, a major, the major cause of preventable blindness in the world and uh, is relatively easy to treat people en masse so that they don't get it. And do you, can you remind me of the number you said you can help one person with a seeing eye dog or you can help X amount of people have sight? Right. Sure. I can talk about that. Yeah. So uh, many people think that, uh, one of the charities that it's good to support is a charity that will provide seeing eye dogs for people who are blind. And of course, it is good if people who are blind can get a seeing eye dog. But it's also quite expensive because uh, it takes quite a lot of time to train a, a seeing eye dog. And you also have to train the person to to work with the dog properly. So uh, in the United States, it costs... Uh, uh, at least $40,000 to train one seeing eye dog and one blind person so that the seeing eye dog will help the blind person. Now, compare that with uh, either restoring sight in somebody who's already blind because of cataracts and uh, they're poor in a low-income country and they can't afford the operation to remove the cataracts, or treating uh, children who are at risk of having trachoma, which is the world's leading cause of preventable blindness. Uh, trachoma is caused by a, a microorganism that gets into people's eyes in hot, dusty climates where hygiene is poor. And slowly, it may take uh, a decade or two, but slowly the children will lose their sight and it won't be possible to restore it. But you can get rid of the microorganisms very cheaply uh, by setting up clinics where um, you treat all of the children at risk. Uh, So the estimated costs for these procedures to restore sight or prevent blindness uh, might range from $25 per case of blindness prevented to $100. So let's take the higher figure to be conservative. now, compare that with $40,000, right? So if it costs $100, then uh, there would be 400 people who could either have their sight restored or in whom you could prevent them becoming blind later in life uh, for the cost of getting a seeing eye dog for one person. So when you think about that, um, and you realize, of course, that it's actually better 
not to be blind at all than to be a, a blind person uh, gaining a seeing eye dog, uh, positive as that still is. Uh, I think it, it shows that we are misguided in, in what we're supporting. Uh, we're, what we're doing here is we're supporting local organizations rather than organizations in other countries. Um, and if we were to look at things just within our own community or uh, region, we might say that's uh, a good thing to do. But if we compare it with the amount of good we could do by helping people in low-income countries who uh, are at a much lower level and don't get the uh, medical care that we can get and that even poor people in this country can get through Medicaid or Medicare, uh, then I think uh, we realize that giving to a charity that's training people training seeing eye dogs um, is good, but it's bypassing an opportunity to do something much better with that money and to help hundreds of people rather than just one person. So that's, I think, what really effective giving is about. And that's the kind of giving that the life you can save is trying to promote. If you're someone who wants to make the biggest impact with your life, I know that's not a passion of everyone, but a lot of times if you're vegan or veg curious, you probably can't, you probably care about the world and are wanting to make a big, a big impact. And to, to not just do what's in front of you, but to be really thoughtful about um, the ways that we take action, the ways that we give, the ways that we change the world, we can amplify our impact, uh, so much it's hard to even comprehend in the mind. Um, and so I love that example of how even supporting the same cause, like the same issue with two different approaches, um, your impact can be so much greater if you just do the research and look a little bit more deeply. And I think that's one of the reasons that I am so passionate about um, about it, supporting people in eating plant-based, eating vegan food is because the number, the amount of suffering and the number of animals impacted that you can positively help by making that choice is so great. And you don't even have to really give anything up in your life. You just change it to a different choice. Um, so I would love to hear from you, Peter, about should we all be vegan and What's like ethical, what holds people back and what would you encourage people to think about as they're trying to make that choice or maybe they're, they're considering how they can live a more ethical life or make a bigger impact on the planet? Right. Good question. Uh, should we all be vegan? I think it will help by first asking, who are the we here? Uh, when I was talking about helping people in extreme poverty, I said that we are people who are middle class or above in a country like the United States. Um, and if that's still the we we're talking about, then I think, uh, yes, ideally anyway, we would all be vegan. But um, if we're people in poverty who are struggling to find enough food to feed our families and uh, in particular struggling to find uh, some protein food to feed our families and we have access to animal products that would supply that, um, then you know I'm not going to say that I'm in a position to tell these people what they ought to be doing. Uh, I'm, I'm really talking to people who have the ability to walk into a supermarket and choose from a wide range of products which will adequately nourish themselves or their families. Uh, that includes both animal products and plant-based products. So under those circumstances, I think ideally, yes, you should be vegan. Again, there may be some people who have some problems with feeling good and healthy on a strictly vegan diet. Um, you know, they, I, I recommend people take B12 as a supplement if they're vegan or been, been vegan for a while. That's uh, easy to get. Uh, but, you know, maybe there are some people who just don't feel good on it. So, so I've, I've had people telling me that. And, you know, I would then say, look, you don't have to be absolutely strict about this. It's not a religion. Um, if you uh, go and find some eggs from hens who have been able to range freely outside, let's say, um, and you buy and eat them, you know, okay, those hens haven't had a bad life. Um, 
and they're providing you with something that will add some protein to your diet that you might have trouble digesting otherwise. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm not really going to blame people for for that. Uh, but in general, yes, a, a plant-based diet is clearly better for animals. You're not contributing to animal suffering. It's um, also uh, a very effective diet in terms of not wasting food because when we grow grains or corn, soybeans or grind up fish and feed them to animals, all things that we standardly do to factory farmed animals, we're actually wasting most of the food value that went into them. Uh, and uh, it's much more efficient if we eat plant-based and we could actually free up a lot of land that is now being used to grow crops. We could stop to stop or at least slow down the deforestation of the Amazon and other regions that are being cut down to either graze cattle or grow more uh, grains and soybeans, most of which will go to feed animals. Uh, and uh, also the animal industry produces uh, a large quantity of greenhouse gases comparable to the entire transport sector. Um, so all the buses and cars and planes and ships and so on. So uh, it's very good for that reason too, to um, eat a plant-based diet. Uh, and finally, I'll just mention, there are disease risks from animal factories. Uh, there's risks of new viruses evolving uh, coming from animals as the coronavirus came from animals uh, and, and causing another pandemic. Uh, there's uh, antibiotics that, develop, that become useless because they're being routinely fed to factory farm animals and uh, bacteria develop resistance to them. So, you know, there's uh, at least those four reasons, I would say. There's uh, for the animals, for more efficient food production and uh, possibility of more land returning to nature, uh, for uh, climate change reasons, and for public health reasons. Uh, they all point us in the same direction. Thank you for outlining that. It's so helpful and a good reminder that if we can do it practically and healthfully in our lives, that it, it has a whole lot of benefits. I have, I know we're running very low on time, but I do have one more question for you because it's hard for me to understand this, uh, where I'm at in this point in history, but you have seen a lot. So are animals better off today than 50 years ago? I mean, I feel like we have more vegans than ever before, plant-based options everywhere, innovations happening that are making uh, these animal systems obsolete and so much progress. But at the same time, I hear statistics like there's more meat and dairy being consumed than ever before. So what's your perspective on this? Yes, I'm, I'm writing about this, of course, in the new edition of, of Animal Liberation. Uh, in some respects, you've pointed to them. Animals are somewhat better off. Um, more of them are uh, somewhat freer than they used to be. There's been a big move against caging hens, uh, for example, uh, that the, the standard battery cages have been banned in the entire European Union. Um, and uh, about a third of the egg-laying hens in the United States now are not in cages. So that's not to say that they're all free-range by any means. They're mostly still indoors, but it's somewhat better that they're not in cages. Um, but uh, if we're looking at it globally, uh, the big negative is that there are some countries that have become more prosperous, that in itself would be a good thing, but as a result, they're eating much more meat. And, and the biggest of these is China. And the growth in factory farming in China has been so rapid and large that it really outweighs the gains that we've made for animals in the United States. Um, and in and other Western countries. Uh, that certainly doesn't mean, in my view, that we should give up. We should keep pushing for change. We should try to push other countries, including China, into adopting higher standards of animal welfare. Uh, they don't have any national animal welfare law in China at the moment. Um, and we should you know, try and, and make sure that if we... Uh, do consume animal products, we only consume them from uh, animals who have good lives, but better still, as we we're saying, we, we don't consume them at all. So I, I still think we should be doing that, but it would be difficult to say that worldwide 
there is less animal suffering in the world today than there was 50 years ago. Uh, unfortunately, I can't really say that that's the case. Well, thank you so much for the time that you shared today. And I encourage all of our listeners to pick up a copy of the new Animal Liberation. We will link that in the show notes. Where else can people find more about you and your work? And if you have any last words of advice or wisdom that you'd like to share with our listeners, please do. Yes. So uh, if people are interested in my work in general, uh, I have a website. It's petersinger.info and you can go there. Um, as I've already said, you can go to thelifeyoucansave.org to pick up a copy of that book and uh, to read more about my ideas about global poverty. Um, and uh, uh, there is a lot uh, about me on, online. If you Google me, you'll find a variety of, of talks and uh, interviews that you can listen to. Uh, so there's more to be discovered there. And I, I hope people will explore for themselves. What a great episode. Peter's mind is so brilliant. And I appreciate how thoughtful he is about every decision he makes. And he has inspired so many other brilliant minds who have gone on to do amazing things for animals. So thank you so much for all your work, Peter. You're an incredible inspiration to so many. It reminds me of this concept of the animal millionaire. Tony, have you heard of that before? No. This idea of in America, people have like the dream of becoming a millionaire, having a million dollars in your bank account. But a far greater dream, in my opinion, and based on this concept of being a million, an animal millionaire, is to be able to impact and help lives. So the concept of an animal millionaire is that through the course of your life, you have saved a million animal lives, which seems really out of reach. But it's surprisingly not. You know, if you take action and you make choices and you lead by positive example and you get involved and you do what you can throughout the course of all your life, you really can do something like impact or save the lives of one million people, animals, whatever. So I hope that this that this episode inspired inspired you in the way that I feel inspired to just do what I can. It's going to be a little extra hard for me to have a cup of coffee because I'm just this is re-cemented in my head like where that money could be going. But yes, thank you Peter. Thank you to all those listening. If you'd like to support the show, you can do show at patreon.com/plantpoweredpeople and we use that support to help get the show edited and carve out time to create as much awesome content as we can. A quick reminder to check out our sponsors of this episode, Ritual and Panachiza. You can find Ritual at ritual.com slash plantpowered to get 10% off and pick up their Symbiotic Plus and Panachiza to check out their new vegan Parmesan cheese. You can find them at P-A-N-A-C-H-E-E-Z-A.com and use that code Panachiza to get our special plant-powered people discount of 15% off your first purchase. Thank you all for listening and we wish you all a beautiful day and we will talk to you in the next episode. Bye. Bye.